Dear Father, I just need you now to guide my words, guide my memory, my understanding, and guide all of our hearing so that we hear the message that you want us to hear this morning and that you will bless us in our time together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I know there are people here who probably know more about Adventist history than I do, but I know there's other people who don't know much about Adventist history. And so I want to talk about that uh, as something that's of interest to me, and hopefully that will be a blessing to you and give you a little more understanding of this church, where we've been, where we're going, and... um, how God has led us in the past. Subtitled it, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. And there's a famous quote from Ellen White in her book Life Sketches. It says, We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. Well, what was that teaching in our past history? And how did we come to Uh, be a part of it. You know, my dad passed away two weeks ago on a Sabbath morning. I was already thinking about this sermon before that. I'd been working on it. And as I thought about his life, he was always a Seventh-day Adventist, as was his father before him. Where did it all start? Well, for our family, it started in some evangelistic tent in Iowa where my great-grandfather had the curiosity to go and hear what this preacher had to say. Apparently it was convincing enough that he said that these people are onto something and he stuck around. And it's been a blessing to many members of his family. Uh, Looking in the um, alumni book for Loma Linda University School of Medicine that I think there's at least seven molders in there and uh, so God has, has blessed our family and led us through the way through the, the Adventist church and the system uh, that has been set up and some of you have a background like mine you have ancestors who were Seventh-day Adventists some of you don't have, not, don't have that background. You've somewhere along the line found enough interesting about this church to be here today to say, maybe these people are onto something and I want to hear more about it. So, Most of the people who joined the church have come from other Christian backgrounds. We heard from Matt and Sabrina two weeks ago what a blessing their testimony was, how the way you have led them, and used people in this church to bring them along in their journey. But churches like this don't just happen. They come from somewhere. You know, a book of 28 fundamental beliefs didn't just fall out of the sky and say, this is the way you do church, and here's a, 
here's an organization, here's the headquarters, here's some buildings, go to it. This came from somewhere. And so we're going to explore a little bit of where that came from. And I'm going to take us on a little trip that's part travelogue, uh, part history, part encouragement. And the, the travelogue part comes from our family history. Uh, back in the early 2000s, we were homeschooling our children, and we were going you know, various places, long car rides, and uh, we liked to listen to stories. And a lot of those, there was, you know, we'd listen to Bible stories, listen to Pilgrim's Progress, listen to uh, Adventist history tapes. We had a whole, I don't know, there must have been 40 or 50 of these Adventist history tapes, dramatizations, and they got us a long ways down the road. And so, like many of the, the best ideas in our home, Linda had an idea and said, you know, we've, we're homeschooling our kids. We know that some of these places in history are out there. A lot of them are a long ways away, but we could combine seeing some of American history sites with Adventist history sites. And so that took a lot of planning. We had to get a trailer, get a vehicle to tow it with, get time off of work. I want to thank my cousin Steve, who I was working with at the time, for helping to make that possible. We had six weeks to go across the country and see uh, some of these sites. So before we start on that, there's a quiz at the end, but I'm going to give you the quiz at the beginning so that you can be prepared. And we'll see whether I was communicating well or whether you were listening well when we get to the end. So number one, um, let's see here. What year was the Seventh-day Adventist Church organized? And I'm going to go to the next slide here. What year was the Great Disappointment? Who was the first health reformer among Adventists? And part two, when did it start to become a big deal? Number four, who had a cornfield and what happened there? Where's the first Adventist church that kept the Seventh-day Sabbath? And where can you find out more about Adventist history? So stay tuned. We should have answers to all those questions. We'll review them at the end. So I'm going to tell you a story about a man who was studying his Bible verse by verse with his concordance at his side. He wasn't moving forward any faster than he felt he could fully understand it. That was pretty slow for him because he took a lot of years studying the Bible. He must have been running his farm at the same time, but uh, he was a serious Bible student. After years of studying, he came to the conclusion that based on Bible prophecy, Christ's second coming would be about 1843. Central text was Daniel 8.14, which says, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Those of you who have been to Adventist evangelistic meetings and done Bible studies, you'll recognize that text and that time period. 
We don't have time to go into the details of that today. Um, they ba he was using the year for a day principle so that those 2300 days was 2300 years. He's looking at the Jewish calendar and counting forward from the time that that prophecy started. And he said, that time is just about done. This was uh, about 1818 that he first reached this conclusion. So, and we'll get to a little bit more of that detail about that. But finally, he felt the conviction to share this news, but he resisted it. One day, as he was praying, he said to God, okay, God, if you really want me to talk about this, you need to have somebody ask me to preach. Well, he thought that was a pretty safe bet because nobody had ever asked him to preach before. And so before he, you know, within the hour, his nephew rides up and says, you know, from several, probably rode several hours to get there, said, uh, Uncle William, my dad wants you to preach at our church on Sunday. Can you do that? And he said, that, he was like, <laughs> God, what are you doing? And he went, and apparently, you know, as the story goes, he went off into his prayer grove and wrestled with God for an hour before he came out and said, okay, I'll do it. And that was the start of something, something big in a public way. It was about the year 1831 that he began to preach in the towns of New England. His name was William Miller. And we had the chance to visit his home. This is apparently the room where he did a lot of that studying, that desk there. There's some nice people there who will give you a tour. And we heard all about it. He's got a chart on the wall there, it's hard to see, of, of the Miller uh, timelines and, and the symbols in the Bible. There's his home. And they went out to preach, which was basically the first angel's message of Revelation. The hour of God's judgment has come. So let's back up and think about this, where this message, the world that this message came into. The Reformation was several hundred years in the rearview mirror. The Enlightenment, uh, the growth of science had led many to question God. Did he exist? Did he care? What was his involvement in the world? Why should we care about him? And the, a popular belief in the late 1700s was deism. The idea that God was more of a clockmaker who set things in motion but didn't really care what happened after that. And rejected the miracles of Christianity and the supernatural aspects. The French Revolution took these kind of ideas to the extreme. They worshipped the goddess of reason. They promoted atheism. They took the church, took over the church in France and took, took their lands. They ended up taking the Pope captive and religion really uh, didn't play a role for a time there in, in revolutionary France. 
But the excesses of the French Revolution, and there were excesses if you've read anything about that, led many to question whether human reason was a sufficient basis for civilized living. And it led many to again feel their need for God. And this led to the second great awakening in America. Um, and people were going, you know, we need God. Let's see what God has to say for us. And a popular uh, feature of life in that time was going to camp meetings. People would gather, thousands, tens of thousands of people would gather to hear uh, preaching. And um, to see what, what God had to tell them. People were being converted. People were turning to God. So at this time, it was actually a good time to be sharing with America about God because people were interested. God didn't have to compete with cell phones, the internet, Netflix, uh, TV, you know, all the distractions that we have for today that give us something else to look at. In a, in a way, Christianity was one of the main entertainments. At this time, this man, William Miller, had been in the War, the war of 1812, and he had an experience at the Battle of Plattsburgh where he felt that God had clearly intervened to help his side, the American side, win over the British. And you know, maybe God is real. And so he started studying seriously in, 19, in 1816. By 1818, he had concluded that Christ would come around 1843. But he was fearful to tell others about this since it meant that Christ would come at the beginning of the millennium, which many people were looking forward to. They were looking to, forward to a thousand years of, of good times uh, before the second coming of Christ. But he's saying, no, it's going to be sooner than you think, right around the corner. So he spent, although he was convicted in 1818, he spent another five years before he was convinced enough about it to speak to his neighbors. He really didn't want to be wrong. He didn't want to lead somebody astray, which is admirable. So for another nine years, he continued to study and talk to his neighbors about it and was increasingly convicted of his need to, to share more widely. So after God's clear sign to him when he was asked to preach, uh, he went, started going all over New England and eventually won several ministers to his belief, including Joshua V. Himes. Well, Joshua V. Himes is a very important figure in Adventist history because he was a force of nature, a natural-born publicist. And he got on board about 1839 and said, William, you want to go, are you ready to go big? Because I'm going to take you big. And he, he got him, he says, are you ready to preach in the big cities? He says, okay, I'll do it. So he got him booked in all the big cities. Many other ministers were converted to this idea that Christ was coming in 1843. And it made Millerism and Adventism household words in North America. In North America. So they were preaching, they were publishing things, making charts, 
They uh, had some magazines, The Signs of the Times, Midnight Cry, a whole library of books on the subject called the Second Advent Library. They had conferences, camp meetings. There was explosive growth between 1839 and 1844. It was essentially a one-doctrine message that Christ is coming soon, and you need to be ready. You need to accept that. This was the first angel's message from Revelation 14. Well, their Millerite preaching was initially welcomed in most Christian churches. They said, well, that's interesting. Let's, tell us, let's hear more about it. But they began to get resistance over the millennium issue and other, as they saw people losing interest in their churches. And so some believers were disfellowshipped by their churches. They you know, said, if you're going to keep teaching this crazy stuff, we can't have you be part of our church. And so that led one of the Millerite preachers to come up with the idea that these churches were Babylon. And the second angel message says, come out of her, my people, come out of Babylon. And so they started to, to share that with, with their people, and it actually encouraged people to leave their churches. By January 1843, William Miller concluded that Christ's return would be between March 21, 1843 and March 21, 1844. Well, come March 22, they were still there. It was the first disappointment. But they found comfort in Habakkuk 2.3, which says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It was the, what they called the tarrying time. They kept studying their Bibles, and thinking about it, moving forward. And in August of 1844, a man named S.S. Snow came up and presented the October 22, 1844 date based on his study of uh, the Jewish calendar. He said that the Jewish Day of Atonement, when the sanctuary would be cleansed, fell on October 22, 1844. So they started to preach less than you know, about two months before the date, what they called the true midnight cry. And eventually, almost all the Adventists accepted that day as the final answer and prepared for it by making no provision for the future. Their crops were unharvested. They closed their shops. They quit jobs. They gathered in groups. One of the places they gathered was Ascension Rock. This is on the backside of William Miller's farm. They're in upstate New York and had a chance to see that. And you can look off in one direction, off over the countryside, and you can just imagine these people standing there, gathered there, probably starting first thing in the morning, all day long, waiting for Christ to come. Imagine how they felt when the sun went down, when the sun rose the next morning and they were still there. This was their final answer. They said, you know, they, had, they were all in on the idea that this is the day that Christ is going to come. And so naturally, it was called the great disappointment because they were sorely disappointed. But it was the start of something big. And this site is preserved today. 
uh, as the William Miller home. And although William Miller never became a Seventh-day Adventist, he is his home, his birthplace, and home is memorialized and preserved by the Adventist church. So after the great disappointment, what happened to all these people? William Miller thought maybe there were 50,000 people who had accepted his message. Other people thought maybe 100 or 200,000. Well, most of them abandoned their Adventist faith, slinked back to their churches or with their tail between their legs, or they became, uh, gave up their faith altogether. But of those who remained believing in the second advent of Christ, there was three groups, uh, three other groups. Joshua V. Himes uh, organized the Albany Conference and tried to get people to kind of agree on what had happened. But apparently there, out of 61 people, there were no two that actually agreed with each other. And so they were a little in confusion, but he did try to organize them. And their basic conclusion was, we were wrong, nothing happened, the end is still near. So they remained Adventists, but they were, didn't know kind of exactly how to move forward from there. There was a second group who said, yes, we were right about the time. Yes, uh, Christ came, but it was a spiritual return. Well, that led to uh, a lot of kind of issues with fanaticism, charismatic movements. They were, you could kind of make up anything you wanted out of that. Uh, But they said, you know, we just didn't see him come, but he did come. And then the group that eventually became the Seventh-day Adventist Church were a few people, might have been only 25 or 50 in New England, who said we were correct on the time, we were wrong on the event, uh, and that, as we'll see, was uh, something different happened on that day. Well, what was that happened on that day? The very next morning, October 23, 1844, a man named Hiram Edson was praying with some friends in his barn. This isn't his barn, but this is his father's barn on his farm. And this is preserved as an Adventist heritage site to this day. And we had the privilege of going there. And they were praying in the barn, and then they said, well, now let's go Go get some breakfast. I'm not sure. They were, but they walked off through the cornfield, and there's corn growing there to this day. And as Hiram Edson was crossing the cornfield, his, he says, I was stopped about midway, and heaven seemed open to my view. I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to this earth on the 10th day of the seventh month, that is October 22, 1844, at the end of the 2300 days, that he for the first time entered on that day the second apartment of that sanctuary and that he had a work to perform in the most holy before coming to this earth. His mind was also directed to Revelation 10 with its account of the little book that was sweet in the mouth but bitter in the stomach closing with the command to prophesy again. So he took that to mean 
that there, something different had happened and don't give up and you need to study this more thoroughly. And they did. He had a couple friends, Crozier and Hahn, who were with him. And they started studying this uh, extensively. And Crozier published on this starting in early 1845. So, where did Ellen White come into the story? She first, she had been a a Methodist girl who had suffered a horribly disfiguring injury as a child. She wasn't able to finish school because of it. She was very devoted to Jesus, and she accepted the Millerite message. And she and her family were some of those who were expelled from their Methodist church because of their beliefs. And she was disappointed and had initially given up her, her faith that anything had happened on October 22. But while praying in December of 1844, she was shown that something of great importance had happened on that date and that if the saints kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, they would be safely led to heaven. And over her lifetime, she had over 2,000 visions that were of benefit to, to this church. And we'll talk a little bit more about her being a founder of the church, but since we, since we brought it up, just say that as the church developed... She was not the one who led the way in developing the doctrines of this church. She, in fact, said that as the brethren were studying things out, she didn't really understand fully you know, the depth of what they were studying. But then, as they had come to a conclusion, she often received a vision that said, that's right, what they have said is right, and it's on the right track, and then she would understand it. So, don't get the idea that all the doctrines of this church were based on you know, visions of Ellen White. They were confirmed in many cases by visions of Ellen White, but they were not. They were worked out by serious Bible study. And that's a whole other topic. Uh, but she was, a, along with a couple of other people, founders of this church. She married James White, a Millerite preacher, in 1846. She was about 18 years old at that time. So where did the Sabbath come into, this, into the picture? Well, if you remember your quiz, here's one of the answers. Washington, New Hampshire. There was an Adventist church there, or at least it was a church where Adventists frequently worshipped. There was a man named uh, Frederick... Uh, Wheeler was an Adventist preacher there and a lady moved to town or lived in town named Rachel Oaks who was a Seventh-day Baptist she was a pretty strong personality and one day Pastor Wheeler was preaching on the commandments of God and she stopped him after the service and said you know you shouldn't be up there talking about the commandments of God because you're not keeping one of them and he goes hmm Maybe you're right. And he studied it, and he started to keep the Sabbath, as did some other people in the community. 
So that was the first church uh, where the Sabbath was kept in an Adventist church. There was a man named T.M. Preble in the community who wrote a tract on the subject. And a man named Joseph Bates got a hold of that tract and he said, I'm fascinated. I want to know more about this. So he, got, he left New Bedford, Massachusetts and traveled to Washington, New Hampshire, which takes longer then than it, did, than it does now. Got there at 10 o'clock at night, knocks on Frederick Wheeler's door and says, Brother, I want to know about the Sabbath. Well, they talked about the Sabbath for 14 hours straight, apparently, as the story goes. And Joseph Bates left satisfied, went home. First guy he sees as he gets back to town is a friend of his, and he says, What's the good news, Brother Bates? Good news is the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord our God. And that guy said, I agree. And they, after he studied it, and so that's Joseph Bates got a hold of the Sabbath, like he did with a lot of things. When he got a hold of something, it really went places. And so over with time, he shared it with Hiram Edson, uh, who was the man who had the, the, the thoughts, the, the vision about the sanctuary, at what had happened in heaven on, eight, on October 22. He shared it with Ellen Harmon and James White before they were married, and they started to keep the Sabbath shortly after they were married. And over the next several years, under the guidance of, of Joseph Bates and Ellen and James White, uh, they worked out a number of the doctrines of the church. We'll get to that. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about Joseph Bates. But first, a couple pictures of this church here. It's a place you can visit. And they've, uh, here's our kids signing into the register there. We're looking at the, the graveyard there by the church where a number of Adventist pioneers are buried. Um, looked in the windows and um, those hard back pews. Be glad, glad you got a little padding here. You got a Millerite chart on the wall. And one of the fun things there as a visitor is the Sabbath trail. And it's, they've got a, a number of granite markers with uh, signs with various quotes and, that have to do with the Sabbath. And you've, I don't know, there's 15, 20 of these along a mile-long trail. And so you could go around and, and look at those. Well, we were in a little bit of a hurry, so we <laughs> ran between signs. But it was just a, a, a good way to get the wiggles out along a long uh, trailer trip. So Joseph Bates, sea captain, man who lived more adventure than most of us have had by the time he was 36 years old when he retired from the sea. He went away to sea at age 15 as a cabin boy. He was captured by pirates. He was impressed into the British Navy. He was uh, imprisoned in Denmark. Um, he was, you know, became, had his own ship and went, uh, had some successful voyages, uh, gone at sea most of the time. But he was 
interested in healthful living long before any of the other Adventists were. Before he ever heard about this second Adventist message, he had given up strong drink, then he gave up wine, then tea, coffee, meat, highly seasoned foods. He became a temperance leader and an abolitionist and promote, you know, working against slavery. So when Joseph Bates got a hold of an idea, it went places. And that, I think that, you know, I said in first service that I, without Joseph Bates, maybe the Adventist church wouldn't have got going. I think I want to rethink that and think that it was really three people who, working together, really made it happen because they each had their individual gifts. Uh, this is James and Ellen White on the left there. And they were a super powerful team. He was the printer uh, who made, who got all these Adventist publications out there, worked tirelessly uh, to not only study and lead and work, but to finance, he was, you know, early on was self-financed. You know, when they were doing these Sabbath conferences, he, would, he worked all summer cutting hay at 87 and a half cents a day so that he would have money to go to these Sabbath conferences and do a little printing. So these were people who really were all in. Then Ellen White was uh, a powerful preacher, writer, as well as uh, giving guidance uh, as God guided her. So they all had gifts that worked together. One other um, idea that came into, into the picture at this time was the idea that the, not everybody lives forever. The common belief was that at that time was that everybody lives forever, either in heaven or in hell. And a man named George Storrs, uh, one of the Adventist preachers, in 1840 concluded that only, the, only have immortality if they follow Christ, so the wicked don't burn forever. Because anything else made God look bad. It was against the character of God to burn people in hell forever. He became a Millerite in 1842 and was strongly advocating uh, this doctrine as well as the 1820, October 22 date. And this concept made biblical sense to the founders. and they, It was necessary to fit with their theology because why would immortal souls who are already in heaven or hell, need a resurrection, let alone uh, a second coming of Christ. So by 1848, there were what they called the pillar doctrines. There were basically five. One, Jesus was coming soon. Two, that Christ was at work in the heavenly sanctuary starting on October 22, 1844, in a new role. That the gift of prophecy was real. And there was more and more people were believing that, yes, Ellen White was a prophet in a, in a modern sense of the word. 
that there was an obligation to keep the, the Sabbath and that there was going to be a role for the Sabbath in the end time conflict that we see in Revelation 11 to 14. And then that the wicked don't burn in hell forever. That was their five big doctrines. They hadn't fully worked out the, the three angels' messages, although James White started to publish on this in 1850. They initially were focused on converting other Millerites to their view because they thought that, well, anybody who rejected Miller's message wasn't going to be saved, so we just need to convince the ones who were convinced then. Um, but they got over that, and with continued work, they developed their theology in a series of Sabbath conferences from 1848 uh, to 1850. So, how did we get from there to here? Well, the organization of the church, in a, in a sense started any time, as soon as you got a couple of people together, you were having some organization, but they started to call these Sabbath conferences, sharing with other Millerites. Um, in 1849, uh, Ellen White had a vision, actually 1848, and she said, you know, God told her that James needed to start printing a little paper to share with people, and that it would, um, how did it say, it would lead to streams of light going clear around the world, and you know, it would be a great blessing. And these people were very poor. They didn't have money to print papers. They barely had money to eat and to travel to these conferences. But James managed to talk a stranger into printing this paper on credit. And he appealed for donations in the paper, and people sent money so he could print more papers. And it grew from there. Uh, the Present Truth was started to be published in 1849, the Advent Review, 1850. The Youth Instructor uh, was Sabbath School Lessons for the Young People in 1852. And in 1855, they opened a publishing house in Battle Creek, Michigan. Interestingly, this publishing house was not owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There was no Seventh-day Adventist Church. These people were what we call Sabbatarian Adventists. They were Adventists who kept the Sabbath. But there was no official church. In fact, people had real reluctance to form an official church. You know, William Miller, he hadn't wanted to you know, form a new church, and so he never got on board with all this, although he, uh, they highly respected him, and he passed away in 1849. Uh, the others were afraid that if we form a church, you know, we've just been calling people out of Babylon. If we form a church, then we're going to be Babylon. And nobody wants to be Babylon, right? <laughs> And then some of their backgrounds, James White and Joseph Bates were from the Christian Connection, which was basically anti-organization. They were like, you know, we don't keep things at the local level. But they started to realize, you know, if we're going to grow, if we're going to be able to spread the good news, 
we need a little more organization. And the whites started to writing about this need for gospel order in about 1853. The other issue was how do we support the people who are spreading the news? They had lost several pastors to discouragement because they couldn't support themselves as pastors. And they had gone to become a storekeeper or um, you know, a carpenter over in Iowa in this town called Wacon. And Ellen White actually made a trip in the middle of winter to go see what was going on with these men. And the famous story is that uh, she gets there after traveling 200 miles through the ice and snow uh, to John Loughborough's working on a roof, you know, doing some carpentry work. And she says, what, he was a famous, you know, he, he had been a significant evangelist of, of the Adventist. And she said, what doest thou here, Elijah? He's going, what? And he says, what doest thou here, Elijah? Just as, you know, the angel had come to Elijah and said, you know, how come you're running away? Well, she was basically telling John Loughborough, why are you running away? Come back. And so they, they said, we're going to try better to get you some, some funds. Well, you know, he did come back, but the first six months he got like $10 and a buffalo coat valued at $10. Um, so they needed a better system, not only how are we going to pay the people who are doing the work of going around? And there were no churches. There was, or, you know, they met in homes. If there was a small group in the area, how are we going to keep these guys working? Uh, and the other issue is, well, if somebody shows up and says, we're an Adventist pastor, listen to me. How do you know they're legit? And so that was, a, you know, how do we credential the ministers? That was the second issue. So Regarding the, f- the first issue of supporting the workers, uh, in Battle Creek, they started this program called Systematic Benevolence, uh, where people would agree to give a, pers- yeah, a certain amount of money every week or month uh, based on the amount of property they had to support the work. And that was a start. Uh, tithing system that we have today was many years in the future, but it, it helped to stabilize things. The next year, in 1860, they incorporated the publishing house uh, and adopted the name Seventh-day Adventist. They said, you know, what are we going to call it? You know, if we're going to do some official paperwork, we've got to have an official name. So, and just taking a name was hard enough for them. But they said, okay, let's, that's what we're going to go with. It's uh, probably easier to use that name than... Um, you know, adopt it, trying to squeeze some of the other pillar doctrines into the name of the church. Those were the two most recognizable ones. Uh, in 1861, there was a conference of churches organized in Michigan, and then other states organized in 1862. And in, 19, in 1863, the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists was organized. Uh, who do you think was the first president? Who, who was the logical choice? Oh, uh, yeah, the answer's up there. But uh, <laughs> who do you have thought the logical choice was? Who did, people wanted James White to do it. Said, you know, James does everything. We want it. And, and James was smart enough to say, no, 
I don't want this to be my church, you know, my organization, my, you know, people say I'm doing this for my benefit. Somebody else needs to be the leader. And so John Byington was the first leader. John, uh, James took a, took a turn later on, uh, a time or two. There were 3,500 members by that time and 30 ministers. So, and it was that year that Ellen White had her health reform vision. Still to come at this time were the health message, missions, educational system, the medical work that now goes around the world, righteousness by faith message, tithing, and the more extensive organization that we need to support a church of over 20 million people worldwide. Well, another place we visited on our um, journey showed us some of the uh, things that the, uh, for about the later part of Adventist history. It's at the Adventist Historical Village in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, place you could visit or you can look at. They, I think they have some virtual aspects to it as well. I'm going to show you some websites for that. Um, but we had a chance to visit there. They've got uh, Ellen White's house. Looks like a pretty good-sized house, but you consider that she had quite a few people living there um, because they, she was always taking in people, workers, teachers, people who needed a place to stay. Um, some other pioneer's house. Nice guy who gave us a tour. There's some, some charts in this old you know, uh, log cabin building. One of the early meeting houses, prominently featuring the law of God at the front of the meeting. I think this was Ellen White's desk that Peter's standing by there, where she would, did a lot of writing. I think she lived there from 1856 to 1863, I think the sign says. And this is the uh, display about the health vision, the vision that started it all. And so you can get your picture taken with Ellen White and learn a lot about uh, what went on there. And then in the same town... Uh, is the cemetery where Ellen and James and a number of their family members are buried. So as I thought about this, it's a very busy chart, timeline. 1844 is the, the line down the middle here. And there's only four of those names at the top that were born before 1800. So you see that um, Ellen White's there at number 17. She was born you know, in the 1820s. These people who founded this church were very young. They were very passionate for Bible study. They were committed in their time, their finances, willing to put up with inconvenience, with embarrassment. They had great faith. They had great hope. They were not perfect, but they were willing to be used by God. And so that's a challenge to us today. Because we're, it's hard to say that we're as committed as they are. But um, it's a, a goal to strive for. 
and to pray about and to ask God to lead us in the direction he would have us to go. Well, how can you learn more about Adventist history? We all can't drive across the country and visit all these places, but fortunately, there's a lot of resources uh, if, you're, if you're interested, and I would encourage you to take some time. You can start with the church library. Um, there's some good books by George Knight there and others. There's the Pathways of the Pioneers audio, which you can get from the LNG White Estate. Uh, and there's other audio and video resources out there. Uh, and you can enjoy listening to. Smart mommies can figure out how to listen to them on your phone while you're driving in the car. Uh, one of my favorites, the one that really got me started, interested in Adventist history again, is, is podcasts. This Adventist history podcast, um, a pastor, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew Lucio, um, who is a convert to Adventism himself. But he started to go, you know, where did this all start? And so he kept studying and studying, and now it's his thing. And he's, got, he's trying to explain it to a non-Adventist audience, but he's uh, very respectful of the Adventist pioneers, but he's a little bit edgy, and I, I enjoy listening to him, and I would encourage uh, you all to take, take a listen. Uh, there's the Adventist Heritage, Adventist Heritage Ministries website, uh, which can guide you to the resources available there. The Washington, New Hampshire Church has a website. Elmshaven, which was Ellen White's home up by PUC, has a website, and it, you can visit there. Um, the Adventist Pioneer Library uh, has a lot of resources, uh, histories of, of Adventist pioneers, timelines, audio, video, uh, old books. And that's their Adventist Pioneer Library website. A um, couple of books by George Knight, this brief history of Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, the first part of that uh, was kind of the, a large part of my content came from that. This is the website for the Adventist History Podcast. But you just look on wherever you get your favorite podcasts and you'll probably find it. Um, path, <clears throat> Pathways of the Pioneers. Uh, this is the Adventist Heritage Ministries website. That, the Washington, New Hampshire Church. Elms Haven. So, here's our quiz. We gave you the pretest, same test now. What year was the Seventh Day Adventist Church organized? If you came to first, church, first service, don't answer. 1863. What was the year was the Great Disappointment? 1844. Who was the first health reformer among Adventists? Joseph Bates. Somebody's been paying attention. When did it start to become a big deal in the Adventist church? 1863, thank you. Who had a cornfield? Hiram Edson. What happened there? Sanctuary uh, was laid before, opened up to him. Where was the first Adventist church where the Seventh-day Sabbath was kept? Okay. And where can you find out more about Adventist history? Podcast, that's, that's a good place to start, but there, you know, I think different, different resources appeal to different people, 
And so I just encourage you to start with something that, that works for you. So, in closing, last week we had a memorial for my dad. And we had a number of things displayed on the table out in the lobby. And my daughter was uh, looking through them. This is my dad's Bible, one of his Bibles. He had definitely more than one. But it says there, written in the flyleaf, on March 28, 2021, forward, this Bible is dedicated toward discovering in its pages the realization that God loves me and wants me. And that really is what it's all about. These pioneers might not have been able to put it that way, but they were responding to the call of God. We truly are standing on the shoulders of giants who gave so much of their life to build up this church. And there's been other giants along the way. And you can discover more of them as you study Adventist history. And we've got giants in this church and that are working for God's kingdom. And so I just encourage all of us to, to follow God where he's leading us just as my great-grandfather did when he went to that evangelistic meeting in Iowa, as that evangelist did when he went to Iowa to preach. And so maybe the next step for you, for our community, is sharing the opportunity to hear what Lee Vinden has to say about the revelation of whom this coming, this coming week. Try to be here yourself. Try to share it with others. Uh, Keep studying and keep following God where he leads you. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. We have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. Dear Father, we thank you that you do love and want us, that you want to bring us home to heaven with you. And we are just amazed at the lengths that you have gone to to make that possible. And we're amazed at the founders of this church who followed your leading despite the difficulties that they encountered. Lord, we just pray that you will bless each one of us as we follow you where you lead us and that you will uh, continue to spread these streams of light around the world through various means um, and help us to be willing to be a part of that. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.